have uh, Jim and Lynn Blankenship uh, with us this evening. It's always good to have them with us. I know the men have always, uh, over the last uh, quite quite some time, have been blessed to have them each month with us at the uh, uh, men's breakfast and Bible study. Uh, but we're going to get an extra, extra little blessing tonight. Uh, so I know God has put a word in his heart. So, Brother Jim, if you come and... Uh, Thanks a lot. It's uh, always nice to be invited to speak somewhere, but I've spoken here before, and so it's especially nice to be invited back to speak somewhere. <laughs> if, if you get invited back, you must not have messed up too badly the first time. So this is good. This is a good thing. Um, tonight, I want to talk from the book of Jude. It's a New Testament book. It's the last book before Revelation. It's the next to last book in the New Testament. And um, I think, if you didn't bring your Bibles, in the little blue paperback Bibles that they have, I think it's page 712 uh, in that Bible. When I was in uh, seminary, I was looking at a church magazine, and they said they examined their articles over the last several years. And they had included... Uh, an article from every single book from the New Testament except for 2 Peter and Jude. They didn't find anything to say about 2 Peter and Jude. Maybe it's because of some of the common misconceptions about Jude. Uh, like the guy who said, the author of the epistle of Jude spent most of his time on his introduction and illustrations, closing out the rest of his homily in just a few lines and reserving only enough space to include a beautiful benediction. That's a great quote. But if I thought that were true, I'd have picked some other text for the sermon tonight. I think Jude is more relevant tonight than perhaps any time since it's been written. I think Christians today can get more out of this book than any generation except perhaps for the original audience Jude wrote it to. If you look at the first verse or two, the first two verses, like most letters, Jude opens up with an introduction. And in his introduction, Jude tells us three things about himself. His name is Jude. He's a servant or slave of Jesus. And he's a brother of James. Great. Who's James? A lot of different Jameses in the early church. Popular name. But everybody agrees that... If you don't give any further identification, if you just leave it at James, there's only one guy you're talking about. Um, this James was the famous James. He was the leader, the head pastor of the mother of all Christian churches. He was the head pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's the James mentioned in Acts 15, especially starting around verse 13. This James is mentioned as a brother of Jesus in Matthew uh, 1355. Same James mentioned in Jude 1. So, if this is the James Jude is talking about, Jude is also a brother of Jesus Christ. And Matthew 1355 mentions Jude as one of Jesus' brothers. So, this is our author. It's a brother of Jesus. Who's the audience? We don't know what city, but the letter is so specific, there's almost certainly a specific audience because the opponents are defined so concretely and in so much detail. The congregation was probably Jewish. 
In addition to the Old Testament, Jude uses other Jewish literature. It's not in the Old Testament, but we've got several copies of a lot of this stuff. It looks like it was really popular. It looks like a lot of people were familiar with it. And so Jude is using Jewish literature besides the Bible. When Jude quotes the Old Testament, or when he quotes from this other literature, he writes in Greek, but he's not using any of the Greek translations that we know about today. He's probably doing, it looks like he's doing his own translation from the Hebrew directly into the Greek himself. So it's probably a Jewish congregation. Um, Jude addresses this congregation as called, beloved, and kept. Three items, like his self-identification. These groups of three are worth noticing. Time and time again in this letter, there are groups of three. It's the way Jude works. Notice the next line in verse 2, his prayer for the congregation. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Another three-part list. There's three lists of three items each in just the first two verses. This comes up again and again. The final thing to notice from these early couple of verses is the word kept. This is a surprisingly frequent theme in such a short book. The Greek word for kept keeps coming up again and again and again. Your translation might have kept, it might have held, it might have preserved, but it's all from the same Greek word. So there's our introduction. And then in verses 3 and 4, he talks about why he writes. What's the purpose of this letter? And in verse 3, he talks about two letters. He says, I really wanted, I was very eager to write about our common salvation. That's not the letter we get. We don't get a letter about our common salvation. He says, instead of writing that letter, I was compelled. I found it necessary. A need was laid upon me to write, instead of the common salvation letter, a letter urging you to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. This word contend here comes from a Greek word often used for wrestling. It's the word from which we get our English word agony or agonize. It implies both struggle and opposition. And he says, I want you to contend earnestly. In essence, he's asking them to struggle hard, to fight hard for the faith once delivered to the saints. Faith here is used a little bit differently. Most of the time in the New Testament, faith talks about the act of believing. In Jude, it talks about the content of what's believed. The faith once delivered to the saints. It's not the act of believing, but it's the content of the teaching. So the fight here is Jude encouraging his audience to fight for the original faith, to fight to continue believing, teaching, and passing on what the apostles taught. Delivered language here uh, refers to the act of passing something on um, like a court decision, something formally handed down. Uh, the word can be a very formal word, and it's a technical word talking about the transmission of an important tradition. So we've got uh, the encouragement to struggle, to fight, to contend, to keep the original teaching passed on by the original followers of Jesus intact and unchanged. 
this faith, he says, was once delivered to the saints. Um, the teaching was delivered by the apostles in verse 17, and it is not to be changed. The way we apply the teaching may change from situation to situation as culture changes. Maybe we can apply, put into practice that in different ways. Um, different cultures have different ways to take care of the poor. So the application perhaps is different, but the teachings of the apostles that we have recorded in our New Testament, the teaching is not to be changed. And then there's just this quick hint as to why it's so important to contend before Jude starts developing these reasons in more detail. He says in verse 4, we need to contend because certain persons have crept in. They're insiders. Those who were long beforehand marked out, set aside for condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, uh, into an excuse for sexual immorality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people who crept in, Jude has three complaints about in this verse. They turn grace into licentiousness. Licentiousness is sexual immorality. There are problems with these creepers, their behavior. There's problems with their behavior. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They have false beliefs and false teachings about who Jesus is. There are problems with their belief. And the third problem with this group of people, the third reason why Jude's audience needs to contend with this group of people, is because they have already been marked, designated, set aside for condemnation for judgment, for punishment. This was all prophesied long ago. God is not surprised. God is in control. The evil and the rebellion that Jude sees is no indication that God is threatened. That's part one, the need to contend. Part two are the reasons to contend. Part two of Jude is from verses 5 through 16, and it develops the reasons to contend. In these verses, first Jude expands on the need to contend, and then he shows the certainty of the judgment on the creepers, the sneaks of verse 4. This new section starts with three examples of judgment. In verse 5, Jude reminds his readers that once the Israelites were saved out of Egypt, saved out of slavery, but the generation that was saved from Egypt did not enter the promised land. The generation that was actually delivered died in the wilderness. They did not believe, so they did not obey. Because they did not obey, they died in the wilderness, and they never entered the promised land. If, if we believe that God loves us, if we believe that God wants what's best for us, if we believe that God is capable of pulling that off, there is no reason to disobey God. The Israelites were told to enter the land. They disobeyed because of lack of faith, lack of belief, probably still a main reason for disobedience today. The more we have faith in God's promises, the more reason we have to be obedient to God. And like this generation of Israelites, the creepers that Jude talks about disbelieve and therefore disobey God. The second example of judgment is in verse 6. 
where angels did not keep their own position, did not keep their own place. This is either a reference to Satan leading one-third of the angels in rebellion directly against God, or it's a reference to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, when the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men, saw they were fair, and took whomever they chose. Like these angels, Jude's opponents rebel against God's authority. And the third example of judgment is uh, in verse 7 at Sodom and Gomorrah, punished for uh, sexual immorality. The unbelief, and unre uh, the unbelief and rebellion of Jude's opponents led them into immorality like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and it's kind of a repeat of the licentiousness theme of verse 4. So verses 5 through 7 uh, pick out three examples of judgment. Uh, if the, the angels who did not keep their own position in 6 is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, um, then all three of these examples of judgment are from Genesis and Exodus. Um, and verse 8 through 10 applies each of these judgments to Jude's audience. Um, verse 8 makes the shift from the past behavior that's already been judged to the behavior of Jude's opponents. And he says these opponents that he's talking about, by dreaming, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and third, they slander, the Greek here is glories, and people guess, yeah, angels, glorious angels, why not? But, but the Greek is they slander glories, blaspheme, revile, uh, talk bad about glories. In the same way, Jude shows that he's tying the behavior of the opponents he's talking about, the creepers he's talking about, they have the same problems, the same sins, the same rebellions that he's already talked about from the Old Testament. Um, God has judged the behavior in each of those three examples, and because God doesn't change, if God has already judged that behavior, God will keep on judging that behavior. These creeps have signed on for the same judgment that the generation that escaped Egypt saw, that the angels saw, that Sodom and Gomorrah saw. The opponents do this by dreaming. This word is used in Acts 2.17. The, the Greek word is used in Acts 2.17. Your old men will dream dreams. This is a word that gets used for supernatural revelations. So the opponents are claiming, God gave me a dream. The opponents are claiming supernatural revelation. But what they use this claim for, Jude never says that it's a legitimate claim. He just says, well, that's what they say. What they use this claim for um, defiles the flesh, rejects authority, and slanders glories. Um, claims to revelation must always be tested by Scripture. Paul in Galatians 3, verse, 19, uh, verse 9, says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one which you, and he's talking to the first generation of Christians, contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. The faith once delivered to the saints is not subject to change. People sometimes try to claim some kind of special permission to avoid biblical teaching, often so they can do something that the Bible forbids or condemns, often in order to serve themselves, to cater to their own desires. We must reject these attempts to twist Scripture to give ourselves room that the Scripture doesn't allow. 
We've got to pursue a careful, intentional, and at times painfully honest examination of both the Scripture and ourselves. Um, we've got to pursue an approach to Scripture in our own life that puts God at the center and consciously asks, where am I called to change? Where am I called to submit? Where am I called to serve? We've got to resist the drive to change the faith once delivered to the saints in order to serve our own agenda. We've been created to serve God. God is not our servant. It's true that God serves us, provides for us, and cares for us, but God serves us according to God's plan and according to God's purposes, not according to our desires. And if we're not going to change the message of the Bible, we constantly need to be ready to let the Bible change us. We won't be perfect in this life. And if we're not changing, it may well be because we aren't learning and we aren't growing closer to God. Biblical revelation, unlike the dreaming the false teachers, Jude's opponents claim, Biblical revelation rarely, if ever, is pleasant permission to do something we already or that people already want to do. Think of Moses and the Israelites at Sinai. If the Sinai revelation were something the Israelites already wanted, they would have had more success obeying it, right? Think of Jesus in the garden. The prayer is essentially, oh God, if there is any other way, I want the other way. The, the revelations typically aren't permission to do things we want anyway. Think of Paul in Acts 21.11, when a certain guy named Agabus takes Paul's belt. Agabus ties up his own hands and feet and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, uh, those in Jerusalem will tie up this man in this way, the one who owns this girdle, they will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He's predicting through Revelation, Paul's arrest and trial. That's probably what the revelations are for. These personal revelations are to steal us for hard times to come. If, if there's something we really want to do, we rarely need special revelation to do what we want. Um, so we, we've got to be careful. If we're ever claiming, yeah, God told me I'd get to do things I want to do, uh, there's a reason to start asking questions right there. So what are these three things the opponents use the dreams to do? One, they use the dreams to defile the flesh. Uh, this phrase can be used of sexual sins. This is very similar to the situation at Sodom and Gomorrah in Jude 7. They reject authority is the second thing. This is exactly the same complaint made about the angels in Jude 6. They wouldn't keep their place. They wouldn't keep their position. They wanted to seize something for themselves that God hadn't assigned them. And like the angels, Jude's opponents are rebelling against God. They're doing it by claiming divine dreams. They're supporting their own desires to overrule the faith once delivered to the saints. Jude said, no, then. We have the same faith once delivered today, and we have the same answer now. God's followers are bound to biblical teaching. They're bound to God's own self-revelation. The Bible is where God tells us what God is like and what God wants. People who reject biblical authority usually do so to pursue their own desires, like these teachers. The third thing 
that these uh, false teachers, Jude's opponents, do by dreaming is slander glories. Well, Jude's told us that in the same way as those three examples of punishment, uh, the behaviors led to punishment, in the same way the teachers behave. The teachers are doing what the people punished in those first three examples were doing. Now, if defiling the flesh relates to the third example, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if rejecting authority relates to the second example of judgment, the angels not keeping the right place, then slandering the glories is probably closely related to the first example, the Exodus generation, that disbelieved and disobeyed. And this fits really closely. There may be no generation that saw the glorious acts of God more frequently than the generation of Israelites who left Egypt. The plagues were sent for their deliverance. There's nine miracles right there. The sea parted, let them pass. The sea closed, drowned the Egyptians. There was a pillar, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. There was manna, there was quail. And then on Mount Sinai, all the Israelites saw and heard manifestations of God's presence. Moses met with God. Israelites could see Moses' face shine when he came down. Moses gets the law in Sinai. The people accept the covenant, the relationship with God. And what happened? Almost immediately, Moses finds them dancing around a golden calf. Incredibly thick daily occurrences of, of glorious miracles. And this generation turned their back on him. And the opponents, in the same way, commit the same uh, errors, commit the same sins. Um, so in verses 5 through 7, Jude cites three examples of judgment from our Bible. Then in verse 8, Jude says his opponents do exactly the same thing, all three of the things God has already judged. The lesson is that God who does not change will judge Jude's opponents, just like God has already judged the same behavior in these Old Testament examples. Jude 9 is almost a parenthetical example of somebody getting it right. Jude 9, Michael, the archangel, when he fought with Satan, fought with the devil, arguing over the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against the devil a slanderous judgment. Michael only said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, the example in 9 is a parenthetical example of somebody getting it right. In verse 8, Jude's opponents are slandering and blaspheming. Then in verse 9, Michael's doing exactly the opposite. He's refusing. Michael, archangel, one of God's closest servants. The devil, God's strongest enemy. Even then, Michael won't pronounce judgment. Michael said, the Lord will judge. That's as far as Michael goes. He said, the Lord will judge you. But that's as far as Michael goes. That's the example for Jude's readers to follow. This is exactly opposite of the slandering and the blaspheming that the opponents are doing in verse, 10, uh, verse 8 and 10. In 8, they're slandering the glorious miracles. And in verse 10, these opponents slander whatever they don't understand. Whatever they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they're destroyed. So 
in verse 10, we close the parenthesis, we go back to the slandering opponents. Um, the focus is on the opponent's slander at the end of uh, 8 and in verse 10. And Jude, Jude says, you know, okay, these people have claimed to have these dreams, but instead of supernatural knowledge, instead of supernatural revelation, Jude says they don't even have the knowledge of dumb beasts. What they have is close to dumb beasts, except it destroys the opponents. So there's the first group of examples and the application to the opponents. In verse 11, he jumps to another three examples and says the opponents are like these other three examples. Woe to the opponents. They've gone the way of Cain. For pay, they have rushed into the error of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Cain, Balaam, and Korah are all brought together here as bad examples. But why these three? What do these have in common? There's an old Jewish tradition that Cain was the first heretic. There's a story that uh, is in old Jewish literature that says just before Cain killed Abel, Abel claimed there is a God who is a righteous judge. And Cain said, there is no God, there is no judgment. I don't know whether the story is true or not. But I know the story, the tradition of Cain as the first one to believe error is an old tradition. Cain believes false teaching in the story. This fits in with Balaam and Korah. Balaam himself taught others how to lead Israelites into uh, rebellion, into rebellion against God. In Numbers 31.16, Balaam teaches Israel's enemy how to get Israel to turn their back on their relationship with God. Cain believes error, and Balaam teaches error. And then Korah, in Numbers 16, is the first Israelite to organize a schism around error. So there's a bit of a progression, a step-by-step -step growth here, where Cain believes error, Balaam teaches error, and Korah organizes error into open rebellion. And all three were judged. The message here, false belief, false teaching, rebellion, all lead to judgment, both in the Old Testament era and in Jude's time, and I would argue the faith once delivered has not changed. We're subject to the same warnings from the same examples. When we combine these three people with the comments about the opponents claiming divine revelation through dreams, we have strong indications that Jude's opponents were false teachers. They were teaching error. They told stories about their God-given dreams as a way of trying to win support for their false teaching. As we move from Jude 11 to Jude 12, there's a shift. Till now, the illustrations of Jude's opponents are all historical, uh, are stories from the Hebrew Bible. Um, all of them already condemned in God's word. All were examples of divine judgment. But beginning in 12, we move from persons as the examples to examples from nature. Um, these men are those who are hidden reefs, is the New American Standard, uh, 
some of the translations say blemishes, some of the translations say hidden reefs, in your love feasts. They feast without fear. They care only for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds. They're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Um, the hidden reefs or the blemishes are in the love feast. It's an early church tradition tied to the Lord's Supper. Jude says the danger is in the community. The danger is in the church. The danger is with people who share the Lord's Supper and your love feast with you. These false teachers appear to be part of the body of Christ. They claim to be Christians. They take communion. In some ways, they act like Christians. Jude's readers treated them like Christians. They were still false teachers. Um, looking after or caring is a verb derived from the, gr the Greek word for shepherd. Uh, somebody who's supposed to care for, to look after the sheep or others. Jude says the false teachers care only for themselves. These false teachers, like all the examples in Jude 12, cannot deliver what they promise. Jude's point is these false teachers use false dreams in verse 8 to make false promises here in 12. They're false promises because all the images in Jude 12 offer false promises. When reefs are hidden, there's the promise of smooth and safe sailing. But because the reefs are present, the promise is a false promise. Shepherds promise to care for the sheep. But when they care only for themselves, it's a false promise. In a dry land with an agricultural economy, clouds promise rain. Waterless clouds are a false promise. From a distance, fruit trees offer the hope of food. Fruitless trees don't deliver on the promise. When push comes to shove, when we come to judgment, the false teachers cannot deliver what they promise. Verse 13 goes on and continues the nature examples. In verse 12, Jude draws examples from air and land. In verse 13, he offers examples from sea, simplify, um, air and land and sea. And in verse 13, from space. Air, land, sea, and space. The teachers don't fit in anywhere. They have no place where they belong. Land, air, sea, space, all of them uh, are closed off as a proper place for the teachers. There's no example for them anywhere. Then in verses 14 and 15, Jude goes back to one of those old uh, traditional Jewish literature, Jewish books called, uh, we call it today, First Enoch, the book of uh, First Enoch. And in chapter 1, verse 9, Enoch prophesies um, that... The Lord is coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds they have done in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Thick repetition of all, 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 ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And here's another reason why Jude found it necessary to encourage his readers to contend all the ungodly will be punished. This includes not just those who were ungodly when Jude writes, but it includes all those who join them. 
and Judah's writing uh, to warn his readers. The warning is, join the false teachers, join in their punishment. Um, further definition in verse 16, and this wraps up part two of Jude. The, the reasons to contend. All of them are warnings about the certainty and severity of God's judgment. A judgment that's necessary because people are out to warp Christian teaching for their own benefit. They will pass themselves off as Christian teachers operating in the spiritual gifts by virtue of their revelatory dreams if that helps them twist Christian teaching for their own purposes. Jude's opponents aren't concerned about God, Christ, or Christianity. They're only out to hijack Christianity and Christians to serve their own agenda. Jude's letter so far, contend for the faith because your assembly already contains godless people who will be judged, and if you follow them, you will be judged. Okay, contend for this reason. There's a question left on the table. How do we contend? And that's what we get in verses 17 uh, and following through about 23, how to contend. In verses 17 through 19, we get uh, the first step. Remember, this is a command. It's not a question. It's not can you, do you. It's a command. You must remember. Remember what the apostles, the messengers of Jesus Christ said. Now, none of us here today, and not even me, remembers hearing the apostles speak. But we have a record of what the apostles taught. It's in the New Testament. The New Testament is our record of apostolic teaching. Jesus is the source of the faith once delivered to the saints, and we have no more accurate, no more reliable, no more trustworthy witness to Jesus' teaching superior to the New Testament itself. These words spoken by the apostles are the faith once delivered, and they are unchangeable. Remember that they were saying in the last time there will be mockers following their own ungodly lusts. The opponents have been prophesied long ago. God is not surprised. God's people should not be surprised. There are false teachers, false Christs, and fallings away that have all been foretold. God's not taken by surprise. God is not shaken, and God is not on the verge of losing control. God's foreseen this, God's foretold this, and God will forestall their success. We need not worry. God is in control. We can have comfort in the midst of chaos because whatever problems we see happening, God has told us and warned us about these problems. In spite Verse 19, they, uh, these people cause divisions, they're worldly, they do not have the Spirit. Despite their claim to revelation through dreams in verse 8, the false teachers are devoid of the Spirit in verse 19. They are no better than unreasoning animals in verse 10. They claim divine dreams, they claim divine revelation, but they're devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit, they don't know the Spirit. So the first step in contending is remembering. It's, it's, it's remembering 
the apostolic teaching, remembering the biblical message. The second step, verses 20 and 21, is to build yourselves, Jude says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, uh, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we look out for each other. We keep yourselves as a group, keep ourselves, since I'm not Jude, in the love of God. Keep is the only imperative, the only command here. We're not looking out for number one, we're taking care of each other. We help keep each other on track. The congregation that Jude writes to is to be a community. And Jude mentions three ways that we can look out for each other. Building ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting, enduring, lasting. Uh, until the mercy of Jesus is revealed. Building ourselves up like a team of wrestlers who train with each other to prepare each other for the match. We take care of each other unlike the false teachers who care only for themselves. In order to build up one another in the most holy faith, we've got to know what the Bible teaches. We've got to submit to that teaching. This doesn't uh, teach to strive for more belief. I have to believe more intensely, more strongly. But to build ourselves up in the faith is to be faithful to the same old faith once delivered. We hold fast to that teaching. We build ourselves up by living consistently with that teaching. Unlike the false teachers who follow their own lusts, we're not distracted or misled by the false teachers. Second, we build ourselves up by praying in the Holy Spirit. No indication of whether this refers to praying in tongues on the one hand or on the other hand praying thy will be done, praying according to the will of God. But we're seeking God's will in either case. Third, we build each other up, we build ourselves up by waiting anxiously, anticipatory waiting for the mercy of Christ Jesus. Uh, the same event that brings about punishment on the false teachers also shows God's mercy. As God condemns the false teachers, he judges righteous those who prove to be faithful. We keep anticipating, reminding ourselves, reminding each other that, that uh, Jesus is returning. We encourage ourselves and we encourage each other to remain faithful to the apostles' teaching. And unlike the false teachers, we live consistently with that teaching. So verse 17 through 19, we look to ourselves, we look within, we remember. Verse 20 and 21, we look out for each other, we take care of each other. Verses 22 and 23, look outward to those who are not yet part of the body of Christ, and we also contend there. Verses 22 and 23 in Jude is one of the hardest places in the whole New Testament to be sure of exactly what the Greek says. There may be, there probably is, a note in your Bible that says something like, the Greek text is uncertain at several points, or there are several variations among the Greek manuscripts. Some English translations have two classes of people, some have three. Uh, since Jude has groups of three throughout, I think it's more likely that, that Jude used three uh, classes of people here. Different translations say to do different things with the two or three different classes of people. Regardless of the translation, they all come down to this picture. They all present the same picture. And the picture is something like a backyard cookout. You're grilling burgers. 
And one of the patties slips down the grill and gets onto the coals below. Instantly, you know, you know you have two jobs. You get the burger out with as little damage to the burger as possible, and you try not to burn yourself in the process. All the translations, two groups, three groups, different things, for the, all go to this example. This is our reaction when we see someone wandering away from the faith. Our instinctive response should be to help them with as little damage to them as possible, making sure we don't damage ourselves in the process. The deeper the burger is in the coals, the more entangled, the more difficult the rescue becomes. The less care we take for our own safety, the more likely we're damaged in the attempt to rescue the burger. Uh, and that's the point of verses 22 and 23. No matter what choices your text made in the translation. And then in verse 24 and verse 25, the conclusion to Jude's letter. That absolutely everybody's favorite part of Jude, even if you don't know it's in Jude. You've probably heard the song. Um, beautiful, beautiful conclusion. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Even in Jude's illustration, when the enemy is already in the camp, the false teachers are already part of the fellowship, we can have this confidence that God can keep us from falling. Beautiful benediction, but it's not just tacked on to the end of the letter. As an afterthought, this section is inseparably related to the rest of the letter. On the one hand, in spite of the false teacher's problematic behavior that turns grace into licentiousness in Jude 4, defiles the flesh in Jude 8, on the other hand, in Jude 24, the faithful praise the one who keeps them from falling. The faithful are presented not defiled but undefiled before God. Notice also that Jude 24 wraps up this keep theme. The faithful are kept from stumbling. This, just, this, this is not merely praise to the one who forgives. Forgiveness is important. Forgiveness is somewhere else. This is praise to the one who gives us power to live in victory over sin, to the one who enables us to overcome the stumbling. Not only are the faithful kept from stumbling, they are kept by God in Jude 1. They keep one another in God's love in Jude 21. On the other hand, the false teachers are kept for black darkness in verse 13 because like the angels, in part because like the angels, they did not keep themselves where they belonged in Jude 6. Although Jude abounds in judgment and condemnation, the target is always specifically on those crusading to undermine the faith once delivered. There's also much in this letter to ensure the faithful that the same judgment which condemns those who are false is a judgment that confirms those who are true. The same God who keeps punishment for those who turn grace into licentiousness also keeps the faithful from being punished. And then in verse 25, the faithful are presented to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Lord, while the false teachers, the problematic beliefs, deny the only Master and Lord in verse 4. Jude is a call to contend for the faith, first by knowing the apostolic teaching well enough not to be deceived. 
Second, by avoiding the self-serving behavior of the false teachers, rejecting the low morality of the false teachers, and instead living a holy life to the one who is able to keep us from falling. Third, by not isolating ourselves from those who are already Christian, but living among believers, sharing life with other believers, taking care of one another, looking out for each other as we serve those who doubt, those in danger of falling into fire. And finally, by serving in full confidence that God is not surprised by anything that troubles us. As you will find out in your series on Revelation, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, God wins. Okay? Because God wins and because there is one who is able to keep us from falling. We can contend in full confidence that God will be victorious. God is not surprised by the opposition. God is not worried about the opposition. And God will bring full victory in the proper time. With this confidence, as we contend, there's no need for us to worry. Who's going to win the election? Oh, my word. Who can I possibly vote for? There's no need to worry. There's no need for us to be bitter. There's no need for us to be vicious or vindictive. There's no need for us to lack any confidence. Judgment belongs to our God. When the time is right, God will both judge the false teachers and deliver the faithful from judgment. Jude encourages his readers, including us, to be among those who are faithful. So, wonderful little letter. Um, anything you want to add? We're good. Um, have a great evening, a great rest of the week. If anybody wants prayer, I'll stay up here. God bless you and walk in confidence, walk in the light.